14 minutes it is after 8 p.m. It's our Thought Leader Thursday segment, and our Thought Leader on this Thursday is Dr. Lwazi Lushaba, who's a political studies lecturer at the University of Cape Town. He's a revolutionary intellectual uh, who holds a PhD in political science from Wits University, and uh, also qualifications from the University of Transkei, Ibadan University, and the Center for Studies in Social Sciences and Culture out in Kolkata. He's also the author uh, of a book uh, titled Development as Modernity and Modernity as Development and uh, From National Liberation to uh, Democratic Renaissance, both of these published by Cordesria. And he joins me now on the line. Praloazi, good evening to you and welcome. Um, the Commandant greets you, um, the Commandant greets black people, and the Commandant greets all your listeners. It's quite a pleasure to, you know, um, reconnect with you. Definitely, definitely. And have this conversation after quite a few years, uh, yes. having uh, been together at first. Yes, yes. A real pleasure, Kamarada. And uh, thank you very much uh, for taking time out to speak to us. I was saying to uh, Robert Marawa and Justice earlier on uh, that, uh, you know, I think even in my own intellectual development, uh, you've played a, a very critical role in introducing us to different literatures from the global south uh, and uh, you know it's uh, i guess a lot of that and those experiences that you've had in the global south that influence a lot of the work that you do let's maybe start off on a, a slightly biographical note Loazi Lushaba, uh, who is uh, Loazi Lushaba? just your own background uh, we also know that you know at some point one was on campuses as well uh, much like many of the students that you teach no, I, I, I very much was a product of the time um, I grew up in, you know. So I was born in the 70s and, you know, grew up in the 80s. So I came into full political consciousness, you know, uh, in the 1980s. So I would think of myself, you know, very much a generation, you know, that generation that considers itself, you know, the generation of Winnie Mandela. Mm, mm. Um, you know, and I then had, you know, an intellectual trajectory that was very uncommon at the time in South Africa. You know, immediately post-independence in South Africa, I, I spent, you know, six years um, in Nigeria, and then I spent, you know, two years in India. I mention this because I think we're going to return to them later yes, on yes, uh, indeed, about yeah. my intellectual formation. Mm, mm. Um, so I was a product in these two places, you know, of two experiments, you know, by two societies um, on how to produce their own indigenous intellectual in large numbers. Mm. Um, and so uh, I returned to South Africa, you know, after nine years having been in these two places, you know, having seen how these societies produce their intellectuals. Mm. So that had a very strong, you know, intellectual formation uh, impact, you know, mm. on my growth. But, you know, um, other than prior to that, I had spent, you know, um, my years, like I said, you know, growing up through, you know, the Tamaltas years, you know, of apartheid until we saw its end. Mm. And I did, as you say, you know, spend quite a, a, a lot of time in the youth movement, you know, in South mm. Africa at that time. Um, our, you know, I, I went to a historically black university, and again, I mentioned this deliberately because I think we'll return to it. Mm. So I went to a historically black university known as Transguy, which would mean that, you know, for the first four or five years of my university education, I was educated solely by black professors. 
Um, and so my entry into the academy was never initiated by white academics. As such, my presence in the academy is never at the behest of white, mm. you know, uh, academics. So I'm never enamored, you know, by white people who present themselves as the epitome of thought because, like I say, I went to a historically black universities in the Transcar, at the University of Transcar, taught wholly by black, you know, academics. I never went to the global north, so I went to Nigeria and went to India, mm, which means mm. that virtually all of my intellectual formation was at the hands and at the minds sure, of, sure. you know, black academics and Indian academics. Now, it does mean something, you know, for the way in which I come to view the world. Um, I, I am, like I said, I'm entirely free, you know, of the white, you know, um, of, of, of the white initiation into thought mm. um, that most, you know, black South Africans suffer today. Dr. Loaz, I want you to hold the line there for me for a second, you know, uh, because I want us to uh, go and take a quick spot break. When we come back, um, I want us to marry the experience of UNITRA as a university within a particular homeland experience in South Africa. Uh, and of course, your entry into the academy in Nigeria at a particular time in the post-colonial experience of uh, the West African nation of Nigeria. And uh, if you draw, I guess, even with the Indian experience, any parallels that you find relevant uh, for where, I guess, the the, uh, sort of post-colonial, if I can say, uh, academy finds itself. And uh, you certainly find yourself at the belly of that particular beast at the University of Cape Town. And we'll come back to those issues after this break. 22 minutes it is after 8 p.m. You tuned in to Metro FM Talk here on the Mighty Metro. I'm in conversation with Dr. Loazi Lushaba uh, from the University of Cape Town, a revolutionary intellectual and uh, somebody who has uh, emphatically told us this evening uh, that uh, he certainly was not initiated uh, by white people or white thought into the academy. And uh, I want us to talk about uh, the wealth of those experiences, um, uh, 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 Loazi, because... I guess on the one hand, uh, you know, the point I was making earlier before we went to the break, you, you go uh-huh. to UNITRA at a particular time in, you know, the homeland of Bantustan experience um, and a very specific experience at that. I mean, uh, and then, of course, you go to Nigeria at a particular point in its own post-colonial development. And similarly, I would say even with India, well, what golden thread, if any, have you drawn in those experiences that you think at least has allowed you, um, you know, uh, um, space to at least mobilize, you know, some some uh, uh, some resistance uh, to, you know, the colonial project within the academy as, as you experience it and as you observe it. So I am on a, um, I'm I'm part again of that generation that went to school under colonialism mm. and went to university after independence, you know, at post-independence South Africa. So I'm part of that generation that, you know, went through Bantu education and then, you know, went to the university immediately after 1994. So when I go to the University of Transkei, it is perhaps, you know, uh, it is 1995, you know, immediately after um, independence. Now, the University of Transkei, like, a few other historically black universities. Black people in these institutions had demonstrated beyond doubt that 
less people were capable of thought at the highest level. You had professors, you know, at the University of Transkei in every field, and in every field, I mean in every field, including medicine. You know, we had a medical faculty that was headed by a black South African professor, brilliant professor of surgeon at the time, you know. um, And so in every field, we saw black South Africans distinguish themselves. So it was not a misnomer, you know, as it is today, that everywhere you look, you have to ask, where are black South Africans? For us, it was a normal thing. So, you know, all the excuses that are presented today about black South Africans not being capable, black South Africans being lazy, black South Africans not liking or wanting to do postgrad studies, we know it's a myth because the University of Transkei had maintained since the 1980s the highest standard. You know, it's the university where the Chabani Mangain is taught. Mm. You know, it's the university where you had, you know, Professor Mazwai, the, the professor of surgeon. It's the university where you had Alfred Dogolo Molia, who had been at Temple University as a professor of political science. Mm. So we had had people, you know, who epitomized thinking at the highest level. Now, once you go through that experience, you know, for six years, it cannot be that later on in life someone tells you, or black South Africans don't like studying, black South oh, Africans, yes. you know, can't run universities, black South Africans, you know, you know, can't, you know, um, be professors. You know that it's a myth that is created in order to precisely exclude black South Africans. Mm. The other thing that you ask that I, I must touch on is the experiences, you know, that one gathered in India and in Nigeria. So I spent cumulatively in these two societies six years. Mm. These two societies are an example of, you know, how two previously colonized societies and independence decided to be true, you know, to, to the maxim that to build, if we wanted to build a society to the measure of our dreams as the formerly colonized, our imagination first had to be free. Mm. They both had experiments, very successful experiments, and I was a product of those two experiments, on how to produce your own intellectuals, your own cadre of indigenous intellectuals in large numbers. Now, there's a difference I must emphasize. Both these societies said you must produce intellectuals in large numbers, but they must be, or there must be a certain outlook they have. Mm. So there must be something that distinguishes them. It's not in South Africa where you just say, oh, no, they have the PhD. That's fine. No. They produced intellectuals, their own cadres, who had a certain outlook. And what was this outlook? All of them thought that their own education was a responsibility mm. to society, or rather, as educated people, they had a responsibility to society. And it meant that they had to give themselves back to society. So their own qualifications were not just for their individual mm. upward social mobility, no they realized that they had to give themselves back, which is, again, you know, an important point. But the other point is that intellectuals from both these societies, there's something very common to all of them. It doesn't matter how schooled they are. They all speak their indigenous languages. Hmm. It was one distinguishing factor or feature I saw in these experiments, you know, both in India and in Nigeria. So I was a product of these two experiments you know, where these societies took a conscious decision to produce their own intellectuals, but it was intellectuals who had a certain outlook. 
So I was in Ibadan, you know, um, in Nigeria, where there was an important school of thought, you know, which pioneered this experiment, the Ibadan School of Social History. And one of the things they said was that there is no society that gains independence and then forgets that education is an important site of liberation. Mm. Because they said that it doesn't matter whatever else you get, if you do not control the production and circulation of ideas, your independence will mean nothing. It is very obvious to me in South Africa that we've come precisely to that point where people talk about radical economic transformation. If for a minute white people gave us the economy in South Africa, how many black South African geologists do we have? How many black South African professors of linguistics, you know, to, to, to ensure that our languages do not die do we have? Mm. We cannot with secondary things and the experiment in Nigeria taught me that you know first we had to attend to the primary mm. things you know in attaining independence the Indian experiment was experiment was not different I went to a center in India where the best of Indian social scientists even today are produced any Indian social scientist that you know that comes to mind from Baba to Spivak have either studied there or they teach there, mm. even when they are based abroad. They spend a semester back at the center, mm. which they take as a responsibility. So even when they have gone you know, to the North American Academy, they still find it their responsibility and duty mm. to return to their societies and train the next generation of you know, intellectuals mm. in India. And now I, these two yeah, experiments... Yeah. I want us um, to, yeah. to talk about that because I think you, you were starting to bring it to the context of South Africa. And you've always said, I mean, one of the things we fail with in South Africa is to infuse, you know, in, in the students who emerge from that uh, process of pedagogic or educational, whatever, uh, who emerge from that uh, are effectively infused with the spirit of wanting to go back into their communities, go back into where they come from and effectively provide some intellectual impetus to resolving some of the challenges and even imagining a new society. Uh, 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 that's something you don't find here in South Africa. Most definitely because, like I said earlier, South African academics, including black South African academics, unfortunately many of, many of them are initiated into the academy, you know, under white liberal thought. Where... They are made to believe that their attainment or their achievement of, you know, their level of education is as a result of individual effort. Mm. So there is an individualization, basically, of the meaning of education. This PhD has meaning only to you as, you know, uh, a person who has acquired it. In these other societies, it has no meaning to you. It can only have meaning when society begins to benefit, you know, from it. So if you go, if you are initiated into the academy under conditions of white liberal, you know, ideology, you then begin to think of education as a commodity, basically. So we think of our education as basically that commodity that mm. will enable us to consume other commodities. So I have a PhD, it's going to enable me buy a car, you know, mm. buy a house, you know, and, and the cycle continues ad infinitum. 
Now, that is the wrong, you know, conception of education we have. And one must say without, you know, mincing words that even in the universities, the few black South African academics you find have become the most selfish, you know, category in society because these are people who ought to see the contradictions of society, but they've basically integrated themselves into that contradiction, and they themselves are about their upward social mobility. And so people find no contradiction being in a department. You are the only black South African in that department. There is no black South African post-grad student, and you think it is normal. Mm. Now, if, you're, if our own intellectuals can pick up what is wrong with that, mm. who will? Mm. Now, that's, that's the tragedy yeah. we find ourselves in South Africa, is that we have a category of people who ought to lead at the level of thought, which means that they are ahead of society. They see things before the generality of society mm. sees them. But even those people that society has given that responsibility are themselves a reflection sure. of the problems of, of society. Mm. Mm. Now, one other point that you, know, you find in these two experiments that I've referred to is that these academics recognize that part of what needed to happen to them is that they needed to delay their individual upward mobility mm. and spend more time with the students spend more time training other academics rather than go into the very individualizing, you know, chase after the brown points that, you know, you need in the academy mm. in order, you know, to rise. And so they spend more time, you know, training more students. And then once they had done that, giving themselves enough, you know, to students, then they could focus on their individual upward mobility. So there was a certain ethic you know, in their careers that, you know, characterize their careers, a certain level of selflessness mm. that they imbued themselves with. You hardly find that level of selflessness amongst academics, you know, in South Africa today. You know, um, Edward Said has a good characterization of the kind of academics we have in South Africa in that book, The Representation of the Intellectuals. He calls them the professional academics, the eight to five academics, mm. you know. Once they have left their offices, they walk through society. They don't see the injustice that they teach about in the university. Sure. So someone spends a whole day in the university teaching students about justice and mm. you know inequality. And on their way home, they don't see the inequality they were talking about. Mm. Mm. And it mm. actually has no meaning to them sure. you know, at that point. They it's actually abstract. might as yeah, well integrate really... in mm. that unequal society, which they were telling students about. Yeah. You know, but it's only relevant between eight and five. It becomes a very abstract formulation. I mean, one of the things, um, you know, that uh, you are quite instrumental in teaching us on a program I was on was um, to explore, in the Indian canon at least, you know, uh, this uh, issue of subaltern studies uh, yeah. and the telling of history from below. Um, I mean, I, I found it a very fascinating experience. But I guess in many ways it interfaces with a lot of the controversy that you've uh, attracted of late. Um, because effectively... Uh, if indeed we're going to take up that intellectual fight, a big part of the terrain of struggle and battle also relates to how we read our history, uh, how we read it, who is the interlocutor in that history, and how we position and see ourselves in that history. Now, I, I, that's, that's, that's the most crucial you know, point that I learned from the Ibadan School of Social History because I was a product of it. 
first thing Pikai said is that if your society's history remains told from the perspective of the colonizer, you yourself are going to look at yourself from the perspective of the mm. colonizer. Mm. It becomes inescapable. That's why today in South Africa, you have to argue with people who say, but yeah, these things, you know, happened in the past, you know, um, so let's forget about them. It is because the telling of the narrative of colonialism in South Africa is from the perspective of the white settler colonizer. And so black people themselves have internalized, you know, the dilemmas that are faced by the white settler academic. The white settler academic wants to speak about our history in a certain way. And so we've internalized precisely that way, you know, of talking about it, you know, in South Africa. Now, these other societies did something different, which was to say, first, we must have a proper history of our society from the perspective of our people. Now, um, to, 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 to maybe use a practical example. So South Africa today say, takes a decision that history must become a compulsory subject at mm. school. Now, let's suppose that's good enough. Who's going to write that history? Mm. At the University of Cape Town, where I teach, there's only one black South African, not even a professor academic in the history department. There is none at Stellenbosch. At UWC, there is only one. You know, and I can continue. At VET, you know, there's only one. Now, who is going to write that history? Now, we, we, must, we must recognize the primary responsibilities that society which gain independence, you know, uh, have to face. Now, the writing of history from below, you know, uh, amongst the Indian subaltern scholars who trained me, was again a response to India had been a British colony. Mm. And so at independence, you know, there is a gift that the British give to all their colonies, and they've given it to us in South Africa also. It is something called the Oxford history of South Africa or the Oxford history of India or the Oxford history of Nigeria or any other society that they colonize. Now, that's the gift they give to societies, which is basically what? This is a British history of Nigeria or the British history of South Africa. When you say it's an Oxford history, it's written from the perspective of the British Academy. Now, the Indian scholars were piqued by the fact that after colonialism, the British continued to write things called the Oxford history of India. And they said we had to respond you know, to this, you know, uh, monopolization of the writing of our history. And they devised the method and said, but we can't just write like that. It has to be different from what they write. And so they devised a different epistemological standpoint, which was to be called the subaltern, you know, history, mm -hmm. which was basically the writing of history from the perspective of the colonized. And this history suddenly became unrecognizable, you know, uh, from, you know, the, the British colonizers. They couldn't make sense of this. They said, but is this the same society that we were studying just yesterday that they are talking about? It has to be a different, mm. you know, society. The ultimate is that they were displaced, you know, from the center of writing the history. I mean, their paradigm seems to be the dominant paradigm in how we look at how, you know, the Indian history was written. Mm. Now, look at South Africa. Today, the controversy you talk about, I mentioned, you know, the Bullock massacre. Mm. 
Mm. And, you know, deliberately, I had called it the Queenstown Massacre. Well, now, there's the another reason, one. Yeah, there's another one uh, in the 80s. So maybe there's a bit of a confusion there. No, no, no. It's actually, I was referring to the 1921. Oh, okay. Sure, sure. The reason I call it the Queenstown Massacre, which I thought people, you know, because somehow you had people wanting to comment on the letters. They, they ought to have said, no, there is no such. I called it the Queenstown Massacre because if I said the Bullhook Massacre, it would become unrecognizable to people. So I was trying to bring it mm. closer home. Mm. But it was also to say, eventually when we write our own history, it can't be called the Bullhook Massacre, neither can it be called the Queenstown Massacre. Inokim Kijima led the people, mm. you know, who died. You know, why does it have to assume a colonial name again? You know, um, but how many people, one, knew about that massacre mm. in South Africa. Two, how has its rendition in South African history, or how has this massacre entered history? It is evidence of the fact that even when we say there is South Africa and there is a history of this society, it is not written from mm. the perspective of the black colonizers. Prolos, I want us to pause here for a second. We need to go to Indengi. So, uh, but I want us to uh, briefly come back and wrap up with Kasbuya and uh, also pick up on this point that you're raising of the Bullhook Massacre in Okumkijima and what happened out in Dabetem by 1921. Mm-hmm. I'm in conversation with uh, Dr. Loazi Lushaba uh, from the uh, University of Cape Town. And uh, Prolozi, just as we wrap up our conversation there, I mean, I think you make a very poignant point uh, around how we remember uh, some of these historic events because I guess it, it also plays into the contemporary uh, and some of the debates around renaming of space, renaming of, uh, you know, particular historic events and uh, all manner of other issues. So just as we wrap up, if you can conclude on that point uh, all the way out from uh, Ndabe Temba. Uh, and as I was making the point about the Queenstown massacres, because in 85, there was another massacre, which is uh, commonly known as the Queenstown massacre that happened in a church in the township of Mlungis in Queenstown. So, uh, there's all of those dynamics as well and uh, the need to also change how we remember those as well. You, you're very correct. So um, the, the starting point there would be um, there, is, there is something that the sooner we recognize and rectify, you know, we would uh, very much regret and generations after will regret. It is that universities in South Africa today have given up on their responsibility to society. Mm. Universities have basically become a place for hustlers. Mm. You know, um, our universities are run by hustlers. People, you know, in the classroom with one eye on the exchange rate, one eye on Mm. the price of property, and one eye, you know, on their bank account, and one eye on where else do I fly to, you know, to to go make more money. Um, Because universities have basically not given to society an idea or a model of what or how ought an independent society look like. Mm. The nationalist elite had a very limited conception of independence. They thought that independence was political independence. Now, it was supposed to be our responsibility in the academies, intellectuals, to say that a large part of the colonial project was epistemic. It was the control of knowledge production. And knowledge production is not skill. You know, we fell again, mm. you know, for the trap of thinking that, you know, the universities exist only to produce people, you know, mm. with skills that are needed by the market. 
society is not the market. Society is the market and much more than just the market. Now, when you say that all the universities should exist for us to produce skill for the market, we are saying all the other aspects of society mm. are unimportant. The market matters over and above everything else. Everything else. Dr. Lushab, Difuna sends you part two. Uh, so you're going to have to make a promise to us and Nabapula Pulibetu that at least you will uh, come back next week so we can pick up just on that point. Uh, because I think it's a very critical point and, uh, you know, so your work and even, I guess, the work of Mamdani always forces us to think a bit differently about this conflation of society with the marketplace. Uh, and uh, markets have predated even capitalism itself, and yet uh, capitalism has been probably the only system where the market has had so dominant a place in the society. So, Praloaz, uh, if you can make that promise to us, uh, and uh, we'll certainly pick uh, this conversation up and have part two of it uh, next week. Uh, this evening, and uh, we'll have to leave it there. I thank you very much. It was it was such a pleasure uh, being in touch with you. Thank you very much, and I hope you'll come back next week for part two. I will. I will. Okay. I will. Right. I will. I will. Inshallah. 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 Shapra Lwazi. Thank you very much. Lwazi Lushaba there. Yeah, 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 yeah. One of cooking on Lwazi, making us think. Uh, Pralwazi there from the Political Studies Department at the University of Cape Town. Uh, we'll continue with part two of that conversation. We're going to take a brief break now, and uh, when we come back, we go into the arts. And uh, yeah, we've got a fascinating conversation lined up uh, with Kanye Sile Mawai. Uh, her work debuts today at the Stevenson Gallery out in Cape Town, and uh, you might want to go and check that out. Now, for our culture talk this evening, uh, opening today at the Stevenson Gallery out in Cape Town, is a, run, is a series titled Stage, and uh, the gallery debuts with the work of Kanyesila Mawai and uh, presenting a series of drawings and photographic works that examine various influences in uh, the formation of identity and exploration of the perceptions of cultural and societal being. A perfect segue into the conversation we just, or from the conversation, I should say, we've just had with Praloazi uh, Lushaba and uh, exhibiting her works this evening, Kanyesile Mawai, uh, from The Ambivalent Blueprint. Kanyesile, good evening to you and welcome. Kanyesile? Hi, how are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. Good, good, good. Congratulations on the debut at uh, the Stevenson. Uh, are you at the gallery now? Uh, no, actually, I didn't get a official opening because of COVID regulations. Oh, 